Okay, good morning, everybody. You're, if you are an adult staying for adult Bible class, if you need a Bible, they're in the back. And if you need a hymnal, which you do for today, you should get one. Pastor is a nosy sneak, and he found a box of hymnals in the basement, so I brought them up. So now they're here. Um, okay, congregation at prayer. Let's speak the verse of the week from James chapter 5. It's also on the board. The effective fervent prayer um, yes, so here's the thing. First of all, what is an effective prayer? Okay. Something you mean. Pardon me? Something you mean. Okay, something you mean. Let's ask this way. What makes a prayer effective? Sincerity of the prayer. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's important, but that's not what makes it effective. The Lord hears your prayer, but you know that you pray in a certain name. An effective prayer is a prayer that is prayed in the name of Christ. Because the Lord will hear you on behalf of Christ. That's why we always end our prayers with something like, through Jesus Christ our Lord, or uh, you know, something like that. And then we begin with a, with a title. We call upon God according to the name. So if we are praying for mercy, O Father of mercies, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We call upon God according to his name, and then the name of Christ. And now, fervent prayer, this should make you think of what St. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, because he says, pray without ceasing. It's not a burden for the Christian to pray without ceasing. In fact, it's a joy for the Christian, because the Christian knows, you know, that the Lord is going to hear your prayers. So keep on praying. Order your life around prayer. The first thing that you should do in the morning is pray. What should you do before your breakfast? Well, begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and pray. What do you do before you go to bed? You pray. Uh, <clears throat> prayer is what orders your life, okay? And finally, this is, a, this is sort of a trick here. Who is a righteous man? Correct. Who is a righteous man? Because the prayer of a righteous man will avail much, but we have to know first who is a righteous man. Okay, the believer. The man without sin. The man without sin. That's a very good answer. That's a very psalm answer. Okay? Yeah, you've got to start. You've got to start. Uh, the answers are both right, though. That's why I said it's a trick, because it's not an either or, it's a both and. The righteous man is the man without sin. Who is who? Jesus. Jesus is the man without sin. But who are you in Jesus? You are the man without sin because Jesus is in you. Yes. So you and Jesus are both the righteous man. So you can pray as a righteous man. You can call upon the name of God. You can be fervent because you have Christ in you. Okay? Um, basically now, I'm going to sum all of this up in one little phrase. Prayer works, so do it. <clears throat> That's it. That's what it is. Prayer works. God listens when you pray, so 
pray. Uh, and a good example of that is Abraham, who prays, he intercedes for what nations? This is a little bit of trivia. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, how about for 50 righteous men, God? Would you, would you spare it if you found 50 righteous men? Yes, I would. Oh, well, okay. Um, well, how about 40, though? <laughs> and it goes all the way down to 10 and to 1. Would you spare it even for one righteous man? Yes, I would spare it for one righteous man. Abraham intercedes. He prays. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Yes, I will spare them even for the sake of one righteous man. Okay, let's speak it again. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Right, and now the table of duties. This is the last one. To everyone from 1 Timothy, speak it together. I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. All right, uh, we talked about this question that a professor asked me at the seminary when we talked about the liturgy, but I'm going to ask you again to emphasize it. If the church doesn't pray for the world and for everyone, who will? Why do we have the prayer of the church where we don't only pray for ourselves and for our church, but for the churches throughout the world, for the whole Christian faith, and for all people according to their needs? Because if we didn't pray, who would pray? If the church doesn't pray, who prays for those people? Nobody. So we pray, make prayers, requests, intercessions, and thanksgiving for everybody on behalf of everybody, and for everybody. I will give a prayer of thanksgiving from the legitimate joy in my own heart for a successful surgery to some, for somebody else, even a complete stranger. Oh, you've come through surgery. Thank God for that. I don't know you, but I offer a prayer of thanksgiving for you. Okay? Um, let's close with prayer because I didn't open with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Children, you may depart. Um, I just want to... I have a couple things to say before we jump into our lesson proper. The first one is that this Collect for Trinity 11 is really great because it tells you a little bit about God. So the question is, how does God make his power known. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the whole world. How does God make his power known to the world? The answer is right here in the collect, if you want to look, too. See, the, the collects for the day are important because uh, they teach you. Uh, so he makes his, he makes his power known through mercy and pity. But yeah, grace. So like when Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion on the crowd, that's God making his power known. 
Now, God has made his power known in other ways, but above all, his power is made known in pity, in mercy, in grace, in compassion. And that's the difference between the God of our fathers and any other God that's been created by man. Any other God is all about being really almighty and powerful. Look what I can do. But our God says, yeah, look what I can do. I can be kind. I can forgive sins. I can come down to your level, be merciful to you. And that's a really important thing. That's a character of God, that God's power is made known in weakness. The greatest uh, illustration of that is the cross, which is why we even have a whole thing called the theology of the cross, which... Uh, I know that Ryan knows about, because he was in my midweek class, the theology of the cross is the doctrine that says God makes his greatest strength known in the greatest weakness, that God accomplishes his greatest good in the time of greatest misfortune. The theology of the cross called that because it derives its name from the place where the greatest weakness and the greatest misfortune was found, but also where the greatest strength and the greatest good was won. Okay? Now, uh, another thing, if you came in later, <coughs> but not beginning with prayer also, I don't know what happened there. Just was a little discombobulated. Anyway, look, at, if you came in a little bit late, you... Uh, you reap the benefits of my forgetfulness because you got the prayer at the end, so you didn't miss it. Um, but also, you should grab a hymnal because it's a hymn day, and found all these hymnals that were in a box. So I cleaned and benefited all of you. It's a, we're killing two birds with one stone because we have one less box in the basement, and we have a whole rack of hymnals up here. Okay, so I don't know. I also save you paper because then I don't have to print out all the hymns on a handout. Um, so you don't need it right now, but we will in 521, because that's what we're going to look at. So um, the other thing is, while I was being a nosy sneak and looking through boxes, I found this book. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago, I brought in some of my own little books, sort of like this. And I talked about how the church used to have these hymnals that you would take home with you and take to church and that it had all of the hymns and all of the psalms and the prayers and the whole liturgy all in this tiny little book. And it was almost pocket-sized, so you could carry it everywhere. And I couldn't find one from CPH. Well, guess what? I found one from CPH. So I'm gonna pass this one around. There's no, there's no copyright date, there's no publication date. I don't know when this was printed, but this is what it says. It's called a Sunday School Hymnal which is kind of cool because it also has orders of service for beginning school. When you come to school, every school day begins with a little service of prayer. You say a, the, you have a prayer, you, the invocation, a prayer, a creed, and uh, then there's a little spot even for catechism, so you do your memory work for the week. And it's in here, it's school teacher says this, to children say this. It's kind of cool. but. By the authority of the English Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri and other states. That tells you how old this is. Because it's from the English Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri and other states. Not from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So I just thought that was really interesting. I don't know which church, 
which former congregation this came from, but it was in this big box full of old catechisms. So. <laughs> yeah. I knew someone was going to ask me that. 1847. That came from Bill, not from me. I couldn't remember. I knew it was. So it's subject to correction. Well, I knew. I know that it's somewhere in the in the earlier part of the 19th century. I just don't. I didn't remember the date precisely. So 1847. What? 1847 sounds right to me, so I'm going to go with that, and I'm going to trust Bill. Um, but roundabout then. So this I, this, I don't know if this is that old, but the, I mean, what it was before the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was the English Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri and other states. So this is probably originally printed back in the 1820s or 30s, judging by the kind of hymns that are in it, and uh, the way the liturgy is worded. So 1820s, 1830s, probably. So there you go. I should be on Antiques Road show, I guess. <laughs> um, it's September 1st. We're in a new month. Um, We've got a new hymn to look at. If, you're, if you've already looked at the handout, you know a little bit about the kind of hymn that we're going to be doing this month. Uh, but the, I want just to tell you this entire month is about angels. Because we're building up to the last Sunday of the month, September 29th. And September 29th is the feast day of St. Michael and all angels, which is a pretty big feast day and just happens to be my favorite of the feast days. And it falls on a Sunday. So we're going to observe that, uh, but I'm taking the opportunity this month to talk about what the feast day is, what, why we care about St. Michael, why we care about angels. So the newsletter comes out today. There's a whole article in there about guardian angels and what angels are and what they do. And um, I brought this in for show and tell. It's been in my office. I'm not going to pass this around. So if you want to look at it more, just come up here after class. This is a statue of St. Michael depicted in the, this is the common way that he's depicted. Uh, the thing about church <coughs> art and character portrayals is that they're always the same. So like in Greek mythology, if you look at the old, the old amphora, the old vases or plates uh, from the Greeks, you can always tell who's being depicted because if it's Hercules, he has a lion skin and he's carrying a club. If it's Dionysus, he's got his fiercest, the big staff with the pine cone on top. If it's Hermes, he's got his winged boots and winged hat. So you always know who it is. They don't need to put a label on it because you know what they look like. The church does the same thing. When you're looking at icons or other pieces of art like statues, um, you can always tell who's being depicted because there's sort of a set form. And this is the set form for Michael, that he is standing with a sword or with a spear, and he's standing uh, on the head of Satan. And this one's kind of cool because he's uh, half man and half dragon. So he's got dragon wings, but a man's torso, and then as 
his body turns around and twists, it becomes a, a serpent's tail or a dragon's tail. And he's standing over him in victory. Uh, because, of course, um, from the book of Revelation, St. Michael and his angels defeated the great dragon. So, um, anyway, that's just a neat little thing for you to look at. There's another picture of it on the handout for the hymn, so we can just seamlessly transition. This depiction is from an old English manuscript. Old manuscripts are really great because they have these things uh, called illuminations, uh, which have a lot of detail. Um, anybody who says that the, the Middle Ages or the medieval period is a period where art was horrible and people didn't know how to draw or didn't care about it, they're foolish and they don't know anything because uh, a lot of that art was contained within monasteries as they would illuminate the text of scripture. So I was, I was going to be cool and translate the Latin here from the text, but I, I couldn't do it. It's kind of obscure. Uh, and I couldn't figure out. I know, I know what the words are. I just can't put them together in a way that means anything to me. So uh, if you want a fun exercise, you can try and do it yourself, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the hymn we're going to look at is hymn number 521. And we're going to do some double duty with this hymn, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Christ, the Lord of hosts, unshaken. I know that there are some people that don't like to sing hymns, and I've, some young people too, and I've come across them. And the reason that they don't like to sing hymns is because, quote, the hymns are all written by dead white people. Why do I care about singing those hymns? Well, the answer is twofold. First of all, if you look through the hymnal and you find uh, hymns written by someone like, I don't know, Cyril of Alexandria, or anybody from the North African area, uh, they weren't white. <laughs> so there's a lot of hymns not written by dead white people, and there's also a lot of hymns not written by dead people. And this is one of the prime examples of a hymn that's written uh, by people that are still alive, because this is actually a new hymn. Um, not, it's, it's new to us because it's in the LSB, but it's newly composed. Uh, it was in the Wells Hymnal, because the guy who composed this hymn, or composed the text for this hymn, is actually a, a pastor in the Wisconsin Synod, the Wells Church. He was born in 1972 in Janesville, Wisconsin. <laughs> there you go. Okay, born in Janesville, and... Uh, he went to seminary at Luther Seminary, which is the big Wells Seminary in Mequon, Wisconsin. And now he serves still as a pastor in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, Kenosha, don't you know? Okay? And um, he wrote this hymn text. And it just so happens to be a really good text. And it became a, a really big, important hymn in the Wisconsin Synod Church. So in their most recent hymnal, which is, I'd say, not that much older than the LSB. Christian Worship, I think, is the name of that hymnal. That hymn was first published in that hymnal. And then the Missouri Synod saw the text and said, wow, that's a really good text. We, we should use that text, too, because it's so good. 
So now we have it here in our hymnal as well. Uh, so there you go. Now this guy who wrote the hymn, he's just a pastor. And I don't want to disparage anybody or the office by saying he's just a pastor. Because really, uh, being a pastor is a great privilege and it's a great, uh, great task. It's a wonderful office to fill. What I mean by that is, this guy is a pastor. He studies, he teaches, he preaches, he administers the sacrament, and then he sits down and he says, you know, I have this itch. I really want to write some text. So he looks at the Bible and he takes some passages and then he puts ink to paper and here it is. And the reason that I'm talking about this is because every single hymn or almost every hymn that we've looked at, with only one exception, excuse me, was written by somebody who was a pastor. Paul Gerhard, one of the greatest Lutheran hymn writers who has ever written and ever lived, greater even than Luther, and I won't argue that point because it's definitive. He was a pastor. Martin Reinhardt, pastor, uh, wrote, Now thank we all our God. Yeah. So, you see, the Lutheran pastors that study, they say, huh, I want to write a hymn text. Because a hymn text does a few things. It teaches and it preaches. So when you look at even a, a hymn that's a paraphrase of a, like a psalm, it doesn't just take the words verbatim and set them to music. It expands on the psalm and tells you what the psalm means so that when you're singing the hymn, it preaches. So writing a hymn is really what pastors do. Now, not every pastor can do it. Not every pastor is gifted enough to be able to work the language in a certain way. But a lot of them do. And this is a really good example. Bill. Right there. <clears throat> yes. For many years of God of grace, this church has been. Yeah, 1934. Look at the author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. William Szymanski. Yes. <laughs> church anniversary hymn. We sang that hymn at the 125th anniversary of St. John's congregation. Mm-hmm. William Smansky's son, Paul Smansky, was campus Lutheran pastor when I was in school at Columbia. And he came and preached, and he was probably 90 at the time when he preached a sermon on one Sunday. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yes, they're even closer than you might imagine. Right, right. That's something, I mean, that's what the church does. The church doesn't only look at all the hymns that we've received and go, well, I guess now's a good time to draw a line and stop. The church can't stop. It's, it's against its nature to stop. So like I keep saying, it's a snowball. We've inherited all of these really great things from ages past, so we keep using them. But then we continue to add a little bit to the snowball, and every generation gets a snowball that's just a little bit bigger. Uh, the tune for this, now this is where we're pulling double duty, because the tune actually appears twice in our hymnal. Uh, this was written by a fellow named Carl Schalk. You may have heard of Carl Schalk if you've been around the Lutheran Church long enough. He is a Missouri Synod guy. He used to teach at Concordia River Forest, which is now Concordia University, Chicago. He taught music there. Uh, and he wrote this tune, which is titled Fortunatus Nu. That's the name of the tune. 
The tune was originally written for a different hymn um, for Easter. And I can show you. Um, oh, it's 454. I even wrote it down. Yes. Don't rely on my memory. 454. Sing my tongue the glorious battle. Which is an ancient text. You can look down at the, at the information there. 530 to 609 by a guy named uh, Venantius Honorius Fortunatus. Uh, the Latin text is Pange Lingua. There's a really famous chant. Pange Lingua Gloriosi. So that's the old chant tune for this text. Well, in the 1800s, somebody else wrote a tune to it, made it a little more hymn-like. And then, um, Carl Schalk composed this tune, originally for Sing My Tongue to Glorious Battle. And um, then they also set Christ the Lord of Hosts unshaken to the same tune. So, we're learning the tune, and we're going to sing it, we're going to sing hymn 521, but once we learn this tune, we can also sing the uh, Sing My Tongue, the Glorious Battle tune as well. So, double duty. Uh, the original tune from the 1800s was named Fortunatus, after the author of the text, which is why this one is Fortunatus New, because Carl Schalk, the composer, said, oh, well, it's not broke, so we'll keep uh, the Fortunatus name. So there you go. Questions up to this point. All right. That's just a little bit of history about the hymn, which is really the least important um, part of the hymn. So, now uh, let's take a look at the text. And to do this, we're going to look at Isaiah 14. While you're turning to Isaiah 14, I'm going to turn to Genesis, and I'm going to read to you from Genesis. Now, obviously, this hymn is a, a hymn for the Feast of St. Michael and all angels, or as it's commonly called, Michaelmas. So if you hear me talking about Michaelmas, it means the Feast of St. Michael and all angels. That's also Christmas. So Michaelmas is Michael plus the word Mass, as in church, as in we're going to Mass. Um, Christmas is Mass for Christ, the Mass of Christ. Michaelmas is the Mass or the Feast of Michael. Okay, So there you go. Uh, there's a little sh church shorthand for you. We don't have to be afraid of the word Mass either, because the Reformers used it and said it was fine. So Genesis 1 is where I'm looking, but I'm just going to read to you, so you don't have to turn there. Genesis 1, verses 3 to four, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now this is probably something you've never thought about with this passage, but obviously Michaelmas really uh, is about the victory of Christ over sin, death, and the devil. The angels give glory to Christ. All feast days are really about Christ and what he does. So Michaelmas is about the angels who serve Christ 
who give glory to Christ and Christ's victory and the battle in heaven that is, uh, in which Christ is victorious and the angels are victorious by the word of God, who is Christ. Okay? That's the thing that to keep in mind when it says that they conquered the dragon by the word, it doesn't mean that they stood up and said, now, now listen up here, sir. I, I gotta, I'm going to give you a stern talking to. And that Satan and all his angels stopped in their tracks and said, oh no, a talking to. And they stood up there and lectured at him. And by the words that came out of their mouth, the angels uh, uh, that followed Satan and Satan himself said, well, shucks. Your words really cut us to the heart. I guess you win this one. Okay? It's not like that at all. There's no stern talking to. When they win, uh, when they're victorious by the word, it means they're victorious by Christ. Because Christ is the word. Okay? Now, the question then arises, when does the fall of Satan and the angels happen? And honestly, <laughs> before I give you an answer, I'm going to tell you this. There really isn't an answer. <laughs> so, there's no place where the Bible says, this is the time chronologically when this event takes place. It just says that it does take place. Okay? But, I wrote a whole hundred pages on the devil and fallen angels and things. So, I did a lot of studying. I read a lot of what dead white people <laughs> had to say. <laughs> no, not, not actually. Um, I read what St. Augustine has to say, and he quotes a lot of the fathers on this. And um, these passages, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness. This is what Augustine says. It does not appear to me to be an absurd opinion that the works of God to hold that if we understand angels to be created when the first light was made, then the separation of the holy and the evil angels takes place when the scripture says, and God separated light from darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Which is kind of a cool thing to think about. That when God separates light from darkness, there's a theological point to be made there, that he's separating the angels of light from the angels of darkness. That that's where the separation occurs and the fall takes place. Who knows if that's 100% accurate, but it's a neat little theological thing to think about. The other thing to think about is this. God says, let there be light. But he doesn't create the sun or the stars until later. So where's the light? And what is the light? I bet you never thought of that, did you? There's light, but there's no bodies of light. So where does the light come from? I don't know. But I can tell you a couple of things. Christ is the light of the Father. But we don't really want to say that God says, let there be light, and he creates light. Because then we would be Arians. Because we would say that God created the Son. But we know he didn't. But we also know that the angels are children of light. So it's a very plausible thing to say that when God creates light, he's creating angels. And when he separates light from darkness, he's separating those who wish to stay children of the light from those who decided they would rather be children of the darkness. So anyway, this is something to ponder. 
we don't need to spend more time there. These are uh, concepts that, that we do not have the information that allows us to, to kind of develop them. When you get out in this area, you're really on uh, un, un, uh, unmarked territory. Yeah, it's, it's fun stuff to think about, and a lot of people have, but... So what we get is what we have. Right, what we get is what we have. <laughs> really, that's the, way, that's the way to be the church. Yeah. That's the way to be the church, to say, what we get is what we have, and if God hasn't explained things uh, like, how does it become the body and the blood? God never said, well, let me sit down and tell you about that. He just said, no. It is. Just accept the fact that it is. One more thing to check into when we reach that uh, uh, eternity in heaven. Yeah, that's what my mom always used to say. I'd ask, I was a very inquisitive child. If you, couldn't, if you can't tell now, I was, I was a child that loved to talk. <laughs> and uh, I would always be asking questions about one thing or another, and they didn't really relate to one another, just whatever question came in my head, that's what came out. And there was always the answer that my mother would give when she didn't know the answer and she didn't know where to look for the answer, she would say, well, I guess that's just something you'll have to put on your list of things to ask Jesus when you get to heaven. <laughs> and that's kind of true. At the end of the day, does it matter when the fall, takes, the fall of the angels takes place? Not really, it doesn't change the course of history. It's just one of those things that is interesting to think about. But don't kill yourself trying to think about it because it doesn't really matter. It's better to think about things that do matter and just relish the mysteries. Okay, so now we're looking at Isaiah 14. Starting at verse 12. And I'll, I'll read some of this because this is long. But I want to ask first, do your Bibles have a heading here? No heading. Okay, the fall of Lucifer. Are you using the New King James? Okay, yeah, I do too. So I, I, I'm using that too, so I know. Hey, we're on the wavelength here. <laughs> your headings are the same as mine. But it's actually kind of cool if your Bible doesn't have headings there. Because then you don't know what you're getting into when you start reading this. The, the heading that says the fall of Lucifer is an exegetical statement. It's a statement that looks at the text and says, well... I can guarantee you that this is what the text is talking about. That's exegesis. When you look at a text and you unpack it and you say, hmm, this is what it means, this is what it's talking about. We ha there's a whole department of theology at the seminary called the exegetical department. You have to learn how to do all this stuff, how to look at a text in the languages, how to translate, how to pick words apart, how to see how they're tying in with other things. And that's one of the things that you have to do when you write sermons and Bible studies is you have to go through the text and look at how everything connects and where it all goes and what it really means. But that's, so here we go. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. I love that, son of the morning. Why do you think he's called son of the morning? If you could answer that question, it would mean you know what Lucifer means. Because the answer's all in the name. It says in here, O day star. Yeah, same thing. The morning star, the brightest of the stars. 
Lucifer is Latin. It's a... I heard somebody... They came close to saying what I was just about to say. Yes, but there's a better translation than the bright one, and that is bearer of light. So lux is the Latin for light, and then cipher brings in the idea of carrying. So Lucifer is the bringer of light. That's why when, you, when there's a church service that's a really special one or a really, really high feast day where we have a whole procession that goes in and a gospel procession you know, where you march into the center to read from a special gold-encrusted book, the Gospels. Um, the person who carries the crucifix into church is called the crucifer. So if you're ever at a church that does that, and, and soon we probably will do something like that too, and there's a special service and you look in the bulletin and it lists the names of the people, crucifer, the title is there. Uh, because they are the bearer of the crucifix. So here's a fun thing. What do they call the people who carry in the light? They call them torchbearers. <laughs> they call them torchbearers. Why? Because they don't want to call them little Lucifers. <laughs> All right, come on. I'm going to teach your kids to be Lucifers. Come, bring them to church. Right? The name's sort of wrecked. Uh, one guy, way to go. He wrecked it all. Okay? Cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the other heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What's the sin there? What's the sin that causes the fall? Somebody said it, and I want to give you credit. Pride, yes, well done. It's pride, the sin of pride. Now, this is the thing about pride. Pride doesn't want to be God because pride knows that God is God and nobody's going to supplant him. Pride just says, you know, I, yeah, I could just be like you. If I could do everything that you could do, you're still you, God, but, you know, if I could do everything that you could do, I, I could be like you. I could be likened unto God. And that's, I think, what I want to aspire to be. I really want to be like God. He can do his own thing, and I'll do my own thing, and we'll, you know, we'll sort of be equals. We'll each have our power. That's pride. Uh, where's the quote that pride the fall? Yeah. Where's that from? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I want to say the Bible, but then I'm afraid if I, I'm wrong. I think it is. But it sounds like something from Proverbs. It sure does, yeah. But, see, the, the thing is, there are a lot of little Proverbs like that that sound like they're from Proverbs, but then actually aren't. Not help souls that help themselves. Yeah, that's right. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Okay? But yeah, pride comes before the fall. This is a good illustration of that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's from the Bible. <laughs> it's in Proverbs. Okay? Uh, thank you, Carolyn. You're a good one. Proverbs 16. Yeah, Proverbs 16, verse Yeah, so um, there's another kind of a cool thing. I'm going to take a drink. 
I've practiced. Um, in the newsletter, if you, if you pick up the newsletter and you read the article, this passage is in the article actually, talking about the fall. So I don't want to go into too much depth. But there's an old piece of Jewish and Christian literature called The Life of Adam and Eve. I don't know if it's, it's an apocryphal book. I, don't, I haven't really read much of it. So I don't know if it's, I don't know how true it is, but it, it's one of these things that provides an interesting thought. That part of the pride is that God creates man, but he elevates man, he gives them dominion, and I've talked about this before. Man has dominion over all of creation, which means even the angels are subject to you. You are above the angels. Now, you're not smarter than them, uh, but you are above them. And that God creates man and gives him the dominion and then says to excuse me, his angels, now you serve them. And Satan says, why am I going to serve that? That fleshy, dumb meat bag. Why am I going to serve that? I'm not going to serve man. They should be serving me. That that's the pride. I should be like God. I, if I had that kind of power, I'd make everybody serve me. I wouldn't give it away. Um, so it's kind of a neat passage. We don't need to talk anymore about it because you can read it. Okay? Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. That should remind you if you've read Dante, the divine comedy, there's uh, the Inferno is the one that everybody reads and Satan sits at the very lowest ring of hell, the deepest part of the pit. He and Judas together. Uh, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed cities, who did not open the house of prisoners? Okay, all the nations, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. Now here's uh, something too. Take all of this, that we've all, all of this sort of cursing language. You're going to be like the garment of somebody who died in battle that's ripped off and thrown into a fire and the body's thrown into the rocks. That's what you are. Now think about Genesis 3. And the further curses that are heaped upon him, your head will be crushed. Right? So that's that. Questions? All right. We're going to take some look at the text here. So this is, we're not going to look at Revelation because I don't have enough time in the world to talk about that. And I don't want to be tempted. <laughs> so um, you can, there's a whole bunch of scripture here that you can look up and read. Um, if you're interested in further study. But I just want you to, to look at some of this text before we sing it, because one of the reasons why this hymn is such a great hymn is because it uses language so well. It's very... Uh, depictive. It has a lot of oomph. 
the language is just extraordinary. Christ, the Lord of hosts, unshaken by the devil's seething rage, thwarts the plan of Satan's minions, wins the strife from age to age, conquers sin and death forever, and here's my favorite line, slams them in their steely cage. <laughs> Isn't that great? Look at that language. Conquers sin and death forever, slams them in their steely cage. They're slammed in there, they're locked away, and they'll never come out. Christ is unshaken by the devil and his horde. He does not give in to the temptations in the wilderness as he fasts, Matthew chapter 4. He does not submit to the will of Satan. He remains strong. He marches forth to battle. Uh, in fact, there's a really great Easter hymn. The banners. Oh, I think it's a holy week. It's all about going to war. Because that's really what the cross is. The cross is war. And, uh, yeah, the Royal Banners Forward Go, 455, if you want to look at it. Oh, and guess who this was written by? Another one by Fortunatus, the same guy who wrote Sing My Tongue with Glorious Battle. Uh, so, here you have the Royal Banners Forward Go, the cross shows forth, redemptions flow, where he by whom our flesh was made, our ransom in his flesh has paid. Pastor? Yes. Several, several years ago, maybe... 20, the Presbyterian Church took uh, a funeral hymn uh, has, uh, out of their hymnal because it, uh, uh, it depicted war. Uh, genius moment there. Uh, but what is Christ and the believers if we're not at war with Satan and his uh, that's what the Presbyterians said, or no, that's. They, said they took the, somebody help me with the, his funeral hymn, uh, sung frequently, and they took it out of the hymnal because it had a warlike connotation. Oh well. Darrell, help me here. Funeral hymn. Very popular funeral. I say onward Christian soldiers? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Why couldn't I think of that? But they took that out of their hand because of the more like connotation. Yeah. Well, here's the reality, okay? The, the war is won, but the battle yet rages. If you don't think that you're at war as a Christian, then you might want to pinch yourself to see if you're still awake. What do you think baptism does? Baptism enlists you into the army of Christ. Now you know what the outcome is. You've already, you know that the, the war is guaranteed to be won because it already has been won in Christ. But it doesn't mean that the devil just says, oh, well, you got me. I'll just give up. Shucks. No, I mean, he's still fighting. It's, it's, he's fighting a moot battle. But he's going to, He's going to take as many folks with him as he can. He's going to cause as many casualties as possible. You're still in a war. Baptism is a sign. A brand marked, uh, branded upon your skin. 
You're marked. It's like the Roman army, the sacramentum. You knew what army they were a part of because they had the brand, so you didn't kill your own people. But to the outsider, to the enemy who sees you, your baptism is a giant target. You didn't have that before, but after your baptism, you have a big old target. And he's going to spend the rest of your life hurling fiery darts at you. Okay? That's Luther's language. If only the Christian could see with his eyes how many fiery darts the devil daily throws at him, he would flee to the sacrament as often as he could. Okay? You're still fighting a battle. You're still a part of the church militant, but the war is won, which means you can fight with boldness and confidence, and you can say, I have Christ as my general in the field. I know that he has already become victorious. Then why did I baptize you? Well, he. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. He thought I put him in harm's way, so he's interpreting it. You are in harm's way. Who would you rather belong to? Would you rather belong to Jesus or would you rather belong to the devil? Okay, there you go. Do you think that do you think that Satan likes it when you belong to Jesus? So what's he going to do? He's going to try and take you away. Exactly. So baptism puts you in harm's way in the sense that you have an enemy. And the enemy doesn't like where you are. And the enemy's going to try and take you from where you are. But it also puts you into the best possible care. Because you belong to Christ. And you're on the winning side of the war. So really, it doesn't matter. You're, it doesn't matter that you are fighting. It doesn't matter that you are the church militant because you will also be the church triumphant. Okay? So, triumphant. I'm using hymnal categories here because there's a whole category about the church militant, but there's also a category about the church triumphant. When do we sing from the church triumphant? Well, funerals. And also, which seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Oh, this person has died. Let's sing a happy tune about how this person has conquered death and has won the battle. Well, for a Christian, it isn't weird because they've died in Christ. So they have been victorious. They are triumphant. The other time we sing church triumphant style hymns is, pardon me? Okay, well, we, sing, we might sing one or two on Easter Sunday. The, the problem there is there are too many good Easter hymns that people... <laughs> but really, the Easter hymns are church triumphant hymns themselves. Okay, but also on All Saints Day. The Feast of All Saints, when we remember all of the blessed departed. We sing church triumphant hymns. Okay, You're, you are in harm's way to a degree because the devil's going to come after you. But you're also not in harm's way because you're also protected by the mighty shield and bulwark that is your Lord. You're clothed in his redemption. You're clothed in his blood. He's going to feed you. He's going to take care of you. He's the best general ever. Because you already know the war's won. Okay? Michael fought the heavenly battle. Godly angels by his side. Warred against the ancient serpent. Foiled the beast so full of... Pride, cast him earthbound with his angels. Now he prowls unsatisfied. Okay, this should bring to mind uh, 
First Peter chapter 5, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is why it's so important to be part of a church, too, by the way. Baptism isn't only about the salvation for you. It's also you being brought into the community of the church. So you're now not alone. You're with the whole community. Your faith is personal, but it's not private. Why? Because you have the same faith as everybody else here. Because you're a part of the Christian faith. Because you're brought into the public body of Christ. Okay? So... Um, the thing, this is why it's so important to be a part of the body. Look at, you watch, does anybody watch nature documentaries? Carolyn and I love nature documentaries. We love them. And one thing that you always see, say, um, let's think about Africa because of the lion language, okay? So, there's a herd of wildebeest. And you hear David Attenborough's voice, now here are the wildebeest. Okay? <laughs> and, and the lionesses sit on the outside in the tall grass. And they wait. Do they go after the herd of wildebeest and just jump right into the middle and grab one? No, they don't. What do they do? The straggler. They go after the straggler. They go after the weak, the old, the sickly. They go after the one that gets separated from the body and they put all their energy into seeking out that one. So when Peter says that the devil waits for an opportunity to strike, it doesn't only mean that he sits in the tall grass waiting for a good opportunity. Oh, you're at the grocery store. I know you really want to steal something. Oh, there's a pack of gum. Go, steal that pack of gum. It's not just that he waits for the proper time to tempt you. It's also that he lies in wait, waiting for the time you begin to show that you are separating from the body. And you better believe that being separated from the body means that Satan and his horde will come right after you. Because they will. So be a part of the body. It's really important. Okay? Um, long on earth. Yeah, here we go, actually. Long on earth, the battle rages. There you go. Stanza three. The battle's still going. Since the serpent's first deceit twisted God's command to Adam, made forbidden fruit look sweet. Then the curse of God was spoken. You'll lie crushed beneath his feet. Now, I uh, want to jump ahead to verse five, stanza five, and then we'll, we'll sing it, okay? Stanza five. Oh, rats. Stanza five of the hymn. Yeah, stanza five of the hymn. Swift as lightning falls the tyrant. Okay, that's from the Gospel of Luke. That'll be the Gospel reading for Michaelmas. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, from his heavenly perch on high, as the word of Jesus' victory floods the earth and fills the sky. And this is my favorite. Wounded by a wound eternal, now his judgment has drawn nigh. Uh, Satan's head is crushed. It is an eternal wound. Like the, like the wounds of Christ are eternal, when Christ comes in the resurrection, his hands will still be pierced. His side will still have a gaping hole in it. He'll come in the flesh and he'll still bear the wounds. But the wounds are not a sign of torment, they are a sign of victory. By these wounds, by these stripes, you are healed. Similarly, Satan's and death's wounds are eternal as well. 
their wounds of defeat. Their wounds proclaim forevermore that they have been defeated. Death's jaws lie broken open. Satan lies crushed. There's a lot of really great illumination, sort of like this one here, for uh, the resurrection, and it shows Christ. And death is depicted as this great monster with big fangs, and Christ rips, sort of like King Kong, rips the jaws open and is leading all of the people out of the mouth of death. Just snaps the jaws right off. And it's great. Um, all right, so the tune. I forgot my pitch pipe, so I gotta be right back. We'd hate to sing this on the wrong pitch. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna sing the melody through one time like I normally do, and then I'm gonna sing the first stanza through so you can listen to the tune two times, and then we'll sing two through six all together, and then we'll be done, okay? Uh, here we go. La da da dum bum bum ba dum bum pi a da dum ba dum ba da dum dum ba da dum ba dum ba da dum bum ba da dum bum bum ba dum bum ba da da dum ba da 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 ba da da ba dum. Okay, stanza one. Christ the Lord of hosts unshaken by the devil's seething rage Thwarts the plan of Satan's minions Wins the strife from age to age Conquers sin and death forever Slams them in their steely cage Ready, Santa 2, everybody! Michael fought the heavenly battle, godly angels by his side, warred against the ancient serpent, foiled the beast so full of pride, cast him earthbound with his angels, now he prowls unsatisfied. Long on earth the battle rages Since the serpent's first deceit Twisted God's command to Adam Made forbidden fruit look sweet Then the curse of God was spoken You'll lie crushed beneath his feet Jesus came, this word fulfilling, trampled Satan, death defied, bore the brunt of our temptation, on the wretched tree he died. 
Yet to life was raised victorious by his life our life supplied. Swift as lightning falls the tyrant from his heavenly perch on high as the word of Jesus' victory floods the earth and fills the skies. Wounded by a wound eternal, now his judgment has drawn nigh. Said Jesus, send your angel legions when the foe If you want to come look at the St. Michael statue, feel free to come up here. Please put your hymnals back on the rack on your way out, and I will see you in church.